Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Patented, a podcast all about the history of inventions with me, Dallas Campbell. This is another one of our special episodes from our mini-series all about evil inventors, or should that be evil inventors with a question mark? Because in this little mini-series, a guest and myself are going to be taking a deep dive into the life, the story, the career of a prominent inventor in history and asking the question, were they evil? Or is it a bit more complicated? When the United States detonated two atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which ended the Second World War, it undoubtedly changed the entire course of history. And of course, it still remains the only use of nuclear weapons in armed conflict for obvious reasons. So it seems mind-boggling that America wanted to make a hydrogen bomb, a bomb with orders of magnitude more destructive power. After World War II was over, there was a rift within the tight-knit community of scientists. They weren't arguing about the science and whether it was possible to build a hydrogen bomb. Some said yes, some said no. They were arguing more about whether it was morally right to even try. How could there be any justification for bringing such a destructive weapon into the world? On one side was Robert Oppenheimer, who you will have heard about. He was the man who really led the Manhattan Project. Yet now the father of the atomic bomb, as he was known as, was vehemently opposed to developing a hydrogen bomb. Against him was a man called Edward Teller. And where Oppenheimer was by nature left-leaning, a liberal, Edward Teller was more hawkish. And where Oppenheimer had a charisma that drew others to him, Teller was more difficult, jealous, argumentative perhaps. Teller had actually been part of Oppenheimer's Manhattan Project, but from the early days, he'd been drawn to the idea of the hydrogen bomb and desperate to make one. And in the end, of course, Teller won the argument, cracked the science involved, and has gone down in history as the father of the hydrogen bomb. He also apparently became the inspiration for the figure of Dr. Strangelove. But is that fair? Was Edward Teller an evil inventor? Who was right about the ethics of the hydrogen bomb, Oppenheimer or Teller? Well, Professor Greg Herkin, who specialised in modern American diplomatic history at the University of California, joins me to get to the bottom of this tricky question. Greg, welcome to the show. It's lovely to have you with us. 
good to be here. I don't know what it is about this bit of history that's always intrigued me so much. I actually went to the Trinity site many, many years ago to kind of have a look at where the first atomic bomb was detonated. And you look around that area and there are still kind of glass beads where the sand had melted or turned into glass. And there's just something very odd about it. I get confused about the difference between hydrogen bombs and the atomic bomb and who did what and was that Oppenheimer or was that Teller? And some of the names are quite confusing. So before we get into the kind of moral debate, let's just start with some first principles. What are we talking about when we talk about a hydrogen bomb? That's not the same as the atom bomb that blew up Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Right. Well, in order to get a hydrogen bomb, you first have to have an atomic bomb. And the atomic bomb is basically is known as the primary. The secondary contains the thermonuclear fuel, the deuterium and the tritium. And basically the atomic bomb, the X-ray, a high energy light, the X-rays from the atomic bomb exploding heat and compress the secondary, which is the thermonuclear fuel, causing fusion. So you have a much more energetic reaction with a hydrogen bomb, rather you have a, an order of magnitude potentially greater explosion. So the first bit, the atomic bomb bit, that's fission, as in you're splitting apart atoms of plutonium to generate the power. So with the hydrogen bomb, you have that which then creates fusion. Is that right? Have I got that right? Or am I? Yes, that's right. Okay. So it's basically two bombs in one. Effectively, yes, that's right. But of course, the hydrogen bomb, fusion produces much more energy than fission, so that the hydrogen bomb can be made much bigger in terms of its yield than the atomic bomb. And it was actually not an obvious thing. It's it's a little more complex than simply putting an atomic bomb next to deuterium and tritium and getting a hydrogen bomb. That was the trick that Teller and a colleague actually came across is how to do that. Tritium and deuterium, these are isotopes of hydrogen. That's right. That's the kind of fuel. And fission is splitting and fusion is pushing together. That's my for simple brains like mine. And each releases energy, but the order of energy released by fusion, by a hydrogen bomb, is 14 million electron volts. It's an extraordinary amount of energy. It's what powers the sun. Yes, exactly. So just give us an idea. So we, we always measure things when we talk about this type of weapon. We measure it against Nagasaki or Hiroshima. How big is a hydrogen bomb compared to one of the bombs that was dropped that ended the Second World War? Well, the Nagasaki bomb was on the order of 20 kilotons, 20,000 tons of TNT equivalent. The first hydrogen bomb tested by the United States in 1952 was over 10 megatons, 10 million tons, so an order of magnitude greater in its yield. Obviously, no one's ever dropped one in anger, but they've been tested. When were they tested and where were they tested? And these aren't the Bikini Atoll tests, are they? Yes, they are, actually. Oh, they are? Okay. Yes, yes. some of them were. The South Pacific islands were basically where the big weapons were tested. The atomic bombs, tactical atomic bombs and that sort of thing were tested in the New Mexico desert. When you're dealing with hydrogen bombs, you cannot explode that in the continental United States anywhere safely. And it really wasn't done safely either. I was going to say, <laughs> no, the, the poor people on Bikini Atoll, I've read shockingly terrible things about it. And also yes. the Soviets were testing them as well. There was a famously, I think the Tsar bomber, the, the That's right. biggest hydrogen bomb ever was... Yes, 60, 60 megatons, uh, 60 megatons. Crikey. At what point do you say, okay, well, we've just destroyed two cities in Japan using this weapon that has 
beyond imagination. I know, let's build something bigger. Like, what happened? What was the sort of origins of, oh, no, we've got to do orders of magnitude bigger? Well, Oppenheimer thought that the atomic bomb was big enough. And certainly after it had been used against Japan, that that it should have convinced everybody that that bomb was big enough. Yeah. But Edward Teller believed that it was possible to create a much larger bomb. Oppenheimer was the father of the atomic bomb. Teller wanted to be the father, became in a sense the father of the hydrogen bomb. And Teller always liked big bombs, never believed, <laughs> I think Teller believed you could never build a bomb that was too big. Both Oppenheimer and Teller were obsessive personalities in many ways. I mean, Teller was obsessed with, with two things, the Russians and the hydrogen bomb. And he wanted to build the hydrogen bomb to deter the Russians from ever starting a war invading Germany, for example. Uh, so basically, that was his dream, certainly Teller's obsession. Going all the way back before the atomic bomb was even known to work, uh, as early as 1942, Teller was talking about wanting to build a hydrogen bomb. And when Teller went to Los Alamos, and Los Alamos is the laboratory headed by Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer wanted Teller, who was a brilliant theoretical physicist, to do some calculations on the atomic bomb. Teller believed that uh, the atomic bomb is not that big a deal. It's an engineering problem, not a physics problem. In a sense, it's beneath my talent. We can go on to the hydrogen bomb. But Oppenheimer pointed out, well, in order to have the hydrogen bomb work, you need to have the atomic bomb first. Uh, so anyway, that became a dispute between Oppenheimer and Teller. And Teller remained obsessed with the hydrogen bomb. Was Teller sort of part of the Manhattan Project? Was he working on the original Manhattan Project of developing the bomb? Yes, yes. Teller was one of the scientists. Oppenheimer was the head of the Los Alamos lab. Teller was uh, came to Los Alamos. Oppenheimer, even though he knew Teller was a prickly personality, wanted Teller because he was a brilliant physicist. But the problem was that when Teller got there, he was probably more trouble than help because he was intent upon building this hydrogen bomb. And as I said, you need an atomic bomb first to make the H-bomb work. Actually, some very important calculations were given to Teller on what was called the implosion, essentially how to make a, a plutonium bomb work. And Teller didn't like to do calculations. He was a man of big ideas. He didn't do those. So instead, Oppenheimer had to give those calculations to a German-born scientist who was with the British mission at Los Alamos, and that was Klaus Fuchs. And Klaus Fuchs actually did the theory of implosion calculations at Los Alamos. Klaus Fuchs was a Soviet agent. He was a spy. And Klaus Fuchs is the one who passed the blueprints for the atomic bomb, the plutonium bomb, to the Russians. I always wondered about that. It's funny how, well, I suppose the Manhattan Project is an obvious example where the Americans developed this bomb and suddenly the Soviets had it as well. But also other things as well, like the Americans developed the space shuttle and then suddenly the Soviets have exactly the same space shuttle and then we develop Concorde <laughs> yes. and then the Russians suddenly have exactly the same Concorde ski. There does seem to be this techno arms race that is sort of reverberates through history. I tell you what I'd like to do, actually, just, you know, we're talking about Oppenheimer. People will have heard of Oppenheimer because there's a movie. You know how it's going to start, don't you? You know, it'll be a slow motion of the bomb going off and Oppenheimer doing his famous, I am a destroyer of worlds quotation, probably. Like if I was directing the movie, that's how I'd start it. Yeah, it's Oppenheimer, by the way, did not say that when the bomb went off. Um, Didn't he? That comment was in 1965. I asked his brother, Frank Oppenheimer, and Robert Oppenheimer were lying down basically outside the shelter facing the bomb when the bomb was set off, that Trinity, the test. Yeah. And I asked Frank Oppenheimer, what did your brother actually say when the bomb went off? And he said, well, I, I don't exactly remember, but I think he said it worked. 
<laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, yeah, it's kind of what would you say? I'd be you'd be like, holy crap! Or it works, but yeah, you're not going to suddenly be doing this kind of great poetic yeah. speech. Oppenheimer was always kind of aware of being, I think, on stage. He was uh, he was a perfect actor in many ways. So that's very interesting. I would like you to paint a picture for us, and that you've met Frank Oppenheimer, Robert Oppenheimer's brother. Robert Oppenheimer died in 1967 when I was in college, so I never met Robert Oppenheimer. Oh, okay. I interviewed Edward Teller uh, three or four times. And I did meet Frank Oppenheimer. Frank Oppenheimer, sorry, yes. Imagine we're at a cocktail party, okay, and Robert Oppenheimer is there and Edward Teller are there. Just paint a picture as we sort of sip martinis in the American desert and they're there. What are they like? I mean, you mentioned Oppenheimer's a bit of a showman. I mean, where does he come from? What was his background? Why was he a, a showman? He was always kind of this ethereal, almost otherworldly figure. You know, he learned Sanskrit so he could read the Bhagavad Gita and the original. Uh, he loved French poetry. So you're talking about Oppenheimer meeting Teller? Is that at this cocktail party? Yeah, I'm just imagining if you and I were at a cocktail party and they were both there, what kind of impression we'd get of them? I just want to sort of get a picture of them as people. Well, Teller was very different in that he was direct. He described himself, he was one time asked what his prominent quality was, and he said it was being quick to anger. And he was obsessed with, as I say, two things, the Russians. He was, by the way, he was Hungarian, and he'd had some experience growing up in exposure to an early communist regime that had existed in Hungary right after the First World War. He was essentially paranoid, I think, about the Russians. He was very much concerned that they were going to start a war. So one thing he wanted to do, he thought that the biggest bomb possible would be useful and maybe even necessary to deter the Russians from starting a war and honestly to destroy them if they did. That's interesting. And Oppenheimer, by comparison, you know, you mentioned a lover of poetry. And I'm just sort of wondering where that came from. I and mean, like, where did that charisma come from? And, and that famous bit of footage of him wearing the hat. Well, he was a very well-read man and he was a very cultured man. He In New York, he, when he was you know, a kid, he went to the Ethical Cultural School in Manhattan. Robert's mother was a well-known painter who exhibited her work in Manhattan galleries. He was brought up to be a very literate and cultivated individual. So there's that. And I think it was natural to some extent, but Oppenheimer exaggerated, I think. He became something of a poseur, I think, ultimately, uh, when he knew he was on stage. That's interesting. The famous sort of film footage of him in whenever it was the 1960s. He does seem to be doing an act, isn't he, when he's quoting... Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. What was that for? Like, why was he reading that bit of poetry? Why was he being filmed? Was it part of something? Because we, we only ever see that little clip. Well, Oppenheimer never expressed regret about Hiroshima or never apologized, never felt guilt or at least expressed guilt over his role in creating the atomic bomb. In fact, he argued pretty much to the end of his life that it was probably necessary to end the war. And that's certainly an arguable point. That is kind of what came out of that. That interview was done in 1965 for a documentary on the, the, the bomb project. And uh, that's when he made that statement. Interestingly enough, he was not politically active, of course, at that time. He was not active in denouncing the bomb, unlike Andrei Sakharov, who, with whom he's been compared, the, the Soviet physicist, who was active to the end, really, in denouncing nuclear weapons and the idea of nuclear war. Oppenheimer did not take that role after 1954 when his security clearance was yanked and he was humiliated publicly in what amounted to a political trial. Let's talk about that politics, because I suppose after the war, 
there does seem to be this debate between the opinions of Oppenheimer and Teller. Oppenheimer, actually, well, perhaps you could tell us what the debate is, because they had two different views about, you know, whether as scientists, you should take a political position on having bombs, or should scientists just remain neutral, do the work that you've been paid to do and let the politicians and others discuss the moral implications? Well, that issue actually came up at Los Alamos during the war, that one of the scientists with Oppenheimer's approval had a uh, a meeting of the top scientists there and, uh, regarding the, the future of the gadget, as they called it. And Oppenheimer allowed the discussion to take place, but Oppenheimer ultimately felt that the scientists should not be involved in politics. Ironically, he became very much involved in politics later. So there was a petition that was sent to Los Alamos that urged that the, the Japanese be warned before the bomb is used and be given a chance to surrender. And Oppenheimer did not want that petition to circulate because he thought it was not something the scientists should have an opinion on. Teller claimed, and I think he was probably right, uh, that he wanted to sign that petition. He went to Oppenheimer and said, you know, should I do this? And Oppenheimer said, no, you shouldn't have any role in this. But Oppenheimer was a member of a scientific panel that advised the committee that was making the decisions on how the bomb might be used. And that would have been the occasion where it could have been stopped. There could have been a demonstration of the bomb prior to its use against Japan. But Oppenheimer opposed that you know, for practical reasons. And I don't know that he ever felt regret about it. I think it's true. And I think this is a point that the movie is going to make is that Oppenheimer believed the bomb, once it was shown to work, had to be used to convince humanity that this was such a terrible weapon that we can't afford to have a war again. And we haven't used one since, so I, I don't know. I mean, uh, that is true. I don't know. It's impossible to prove a negative, but one can argue. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. What was his reaction of seeing Hiroshima? Well, it, it's interesting. Uh, I know because I've interviewed the scientists who were at the Trinity site. They all talk about Oppenheimer's high noon strut after the bomb had gone off. That he was quite pleased, of course, that uh, he'd spent you know, three years working on this thing or more, and it succeeded. None of the scientists knew how bad it was at Hiroshima until the casualty reports came in, so that they all, not all, but most celebrated the night that we had dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. Not all, but most. It's interesting that one of the scientists had, he had brought two bottles of scotch to Los Alamos, the first to drink when the Germans surrendered, and the second to drink when the Japanese surrendered. The second bottle was never opened after Hiroshima. It was nothing to celebrate. And it's interesting that Teller, I mean, you mentioned that he was a staunch anti-communist and very much of the opinion that the role of scientists was not to consider the political ramifications of such things. Which is ironic because he becomes a major advisor to the American government, of course, <laughs> yeah. after the war. That one thing that Teller and Teller's allies said that every time you opened a door in Washington, Oppenheimer was behind it. This was before 1954, when Oppenheimer was still, he was the chairman of the General Advisory Committee to the Atomic Energy Commission. So he and his colleagues were advising the government on nuclear weapons policy. And that's what got him into trouble, because he and they urged that the hydrogen bomb not be built, that research essentially not go forward. And of course, enraged Teller and enraged the H-bomb lobby, which was mostly the Air Force, the American Air Force and the Atomic Energy Commission chairman, uh, Louis Strauss. Uh, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about the sort of early designs of the hydrogen bomb once it gets the go-ahead and, and how the idea became a reality. The breakthrough really was known as the Teller-Ulam idea, and it's called radiation implosion. 
the early idea was of the hydrogen bomb is you put an atomic bomb next to this deuterium tritium mixture and try to set it off with the heat doesn't work. I mean, you know, basically the shock wave hits it and that's it. The breakthrough was the realization, I mean, simply that light travels much faster than sound, that light is 186,000 miles a second, sound is what, 700 miles an hour, that the light from the exploding atomic bomb is going to get to the secondary, the hydrogen bomb component, much faster than the shock wave. And if you can use that light, which is really high energy x-rays, to simultaneously heat and compress this capsule that contains the hydrogen that you can get a full reaction, it will explode before the shock wave gets there and blows everything to kingdom come. So that's radiation implosion. You're actually using the high-energy X-rays to implode the secondary that contains the hydrogen fuel and get a thermonuclear reaction. It wasn't Teller's idea only. There was a physicist, I mean, I'm sorry, a mathematician at Los Alamos, a brilliant mathematician, Stanislas Ulam. And Ulam had the idea initially of what he called a bomb in the box, that you would use this idea of using the atomic bomb to compress the secondary. But what Teller realized is that it wouldn't be the physical force of the explosion. It would be the high energy X-rays that could be used. Got it. The first successful H-bomb test, where is this and when is it? Ivy Mike, I believe it was called, wasn't it? Or- yes, Ivy Mike. And that was November 1st, 1952. And it was out in the South Pacific, not too far from Bikini Atoll. It was actually a larger explosion than was expected. There was something, as one of the scientists told me, they had designed it as well as they could and everything worked and it even worked better than they thought. So it dug a hole in the ocean floor. I think it was over 10 million tons equivalent of TNT. Did Teller, was he there? Did he go and witness it? going off or? He had, of course, a major role in the whole thing, but he was at Berkeley and he was in the room where the seismograph is at Berkeley. And he could tell by the squiggle on the seismograph that the bomb had gone off. And I think that the legend is that he sent the telegram to a colleague saying, it's a boy. Uh, In other words, it, it works. Hi, I'm Eleanor Yanaga, and I'm thrilled to be joining Matt Lewis to co-present Gone Medieval from History Hit. Twice a week, every week, we set out to answer the big questions that have vexed people for centuries. Like, what did the Romans ever do for us? Roads, buildings, walls, churches, houses, manuscripts. Why did Edward I mourn his Queen Eleanor so much? He was very good at making a show for people to see that was going to influence how they would understand him or his campaigns or anything like that. Did Viking hero Ragnar Lothbrok really exist? Maybe yes, maybe no. The sons who are attributed to him were definitely real people. So join me, Eleanor Yanaga. And me, Matt Lewis, for Gone Medieval from History Hit. Listen and follow on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. One of the reasons why Edward Teller is well known is the sort of betrayal of Oppenheimer and a bit later on after that. Can you just talk about that, about that relationship and what actually happened? Well, the, the whole thing comes to a head in 1954 when the H-bomb lobby people, and that included Teller, but mostly Louis Strauss, who was the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission, really want to destroy Oppenheimer's influence in Washington. And so he is put on essentially what amounts to a political trial. It was a security hearing, but it was effectively, the fix was in, it was a trial. And it was to basically end his influence. And most of the scientists who were called to the hearing were, of course, for Oppenheimer, that they testified as character witnesses in his defense. Teller, who knew Oppenheimer all the way back to 1942, was called, and he had been coached on his testimony. He denied this Subsequently, we can get into that later. But he had been coached on his testimony the day before the hearing so that they knew he was going to testify critically of Oppenheimer. And basically, when he was asked, should Oppenheimer have a security clearance? Should he continue to be a major advisor on nuclear policy? Teller said that he didn't understand Oppenheimer. And Oppenheimer had acted in ways in the past that he didn't understand. And that's a reference to opposing the hydrogen bomb. And that he, Teller, would feel better if the uh, nation's security were in hands that he knew better and trusted more. And so when Duress asked directly, would you give Dr. Oppenheimer a security clearance? Would you renew that clearance? Teller said no. And as far as Oppenheimer's friends were concerned, one of them told me that this was not only sticking the knife in Oppenheimer's back, but twisting the blade. It really was critical. What was his feelings towards Edward Teller before that and obviously after that? Well, Teller actually went up to Oppenheimer after that testimony and said, I'm sorry. And Oppenheimer, I think, said, uh, after what you just said, I don't know what you mean. I'm not quite sure what that was, what that was meant to be. It's ironic that many years later, in 1964, Oppenheimer gets the Fermi Prize, and um, Teller is there at the reception. And Teller comes up and, and shakes Oppenheimer's hand, basically, that in Oppenheimer. I don't know if that's forgiveness or not. I'm probably the last historian to have interviewed Edward Teller, to have talked to him less than three months before his death. I gave a lecture at, at Livermore on my book, Brotherhood of the Bomb. And part of the deal I worked out was I would get to see Edward Teller afterwards. And I had interviewed Teller 
three times before. One time he kicked me out of his office, as a matter of fact. No, that wasn't anyway. he kicked other people out of his office. He was that way. <laughs> but anyway. Why did he kick you out of the office? you got to tell us why he kicked you out. It, well, all right. It was back in 1984, I think. It was the, right after Star Wars. The Strategic Defense Initiative had been announced by President Reagan. And, of course, Teller was one of the architects of Star Wars, a primary architect of it. And I was doing an article on Star Wars, and I was somewhat critical of the idea. And Teller didn't like that. So Teller invited me to leave. But that was not unusual. I mean, this business about being quick to anger is certainly true. He understood himself. Other historians who had asked Teller questions he didn't like had also been kicked out of his office. Interestingly enough, we were all invited back in what 1993, because it was the 50th anniversary of Los Alamos. We were invited back to the reunion by Teller. His mood had improved a lot because the Soviet <laughs> Union had collapsed. So, right. <laughs> uh, so we, were, we were all invited back so we could ask Teller anything we wanted. And he didn't walk out and he didn't kick us out this time. Just very briefly, just uh, Star Wars, we're not talking about the movie. We are talking yes. about nukes in space, I remember, as a kid that Reagan had come up with. Yeah, it was uh, Livermore developed uh, what was known as the X-ray laser, and the idea was that you would be able to have these battle stations, if you will, in orbit and with X-ray lasers. And as the Soviets launched their ICBMs, they could be intercepted and destroyed in space before they got to their targets in America. Was the idea? That's amazing. You've met him actually, because he has this interesting legacy. And I suppose the most famous bit of his legacy is the portrayal of you know the Doctor Strange love character. Is that fair? Is that is that true? First of all, was he the inspiration for Dr. Strangelove or was that slightly exaggerated? Possibly. He was a strange again character. I mean, in many stories, but one of them, I can say that Robert Serber was one of Oppenheimer's friends and were also worked at Los Alamos. And Serber said he walked by Teller's office one time and Teller was at the blackboard and he was writing ideas for bombs that would be even bigger, you know, the biggest bomb really? possible. And one was called the Backyard Bomb. Because it was essentially, you know, a doomsday machine. You know, if you had to kill the enemy, all you had to do was set the bomb off in your own backyard. I can't really explain why anybody would be so interested in something that destructive. I mean, what did Teller think about the arms race or the fact that both sides having nuclear weapons, that you would always have that stalemate and nobody would ever use them? I mean, was he on board with that? Did he understand how that worked? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think if you say that Oppenheimer built the atomic bomb to basically make sure that it would end all wars, Teller wanted to make sure even more sure, doubly sure, that these weapons would not be used, one can argue. Uh, and hence, you would need the biggest bomb possible. You can build a hydrogen bomb to be almost as powerful as you want. It's just a matter of how much deuterium you add and everything. But you cannot make it infinitely destructive, it turns out, because what happens, and this is what happened with the Tsar bomb, is that the blast wave actually goes right up through the stratosphere and into space. And I remember talking to somebody who made this comment and said, Teller seemed to be sort of disappointed <laughs> that, that you couldn't build an infinitely large hydrogen bomb, that it would go up, you would lose the blast effect. I don't know if that's true or not, but that was what, what he said. How do you think his legacy changed the 20th century. So much of the, of the second half of the 20th century was dominated by the threat of nuclear weapons. And crikey, here we are again, sort of slightly revisiting the Cold War as things frost over. How much is Teller responsible for that, do you think? Teller always argued that if he didn't build the H-bomb, others would have, and that the Russians certainly would have gotten it. And actually, I think he's right about that. 
I think in Teller's defense, again, that his logic was you want to have a weapon that is the most terrible possible to deter it from ever being used. And that was Oppenheimer's logic. I think that was Teller's logic as well. The problem is you're building something that could be world-ending if used in sufficient numbers. I mean, you met the guy. In a way, that kind of Dr. Strangelove image of the kind of mad, evil genius. Do you think that's fair? Like, do you think he was a an evil man or do you think he was a good man? Was he misunderstood? Was he a product <laughs> of his age? I mean, you've actually sat with him. You've actually been thrown out of his office, so... <laughs> Right. Well, actually, I found him somewhat charming. He had a self-deprecating humor. I see him as a complicated man, not an evil man. As complicated as Oppenheimer, but complicated in different ways. But actually, if I can get back to that last time that I met Teller, and that was less than three months before his death. The interesting thing to me about the interview with Teller is every time that I talked with him, he is the one who brought up Oppenheimer. He knew that I was there to talk about Oppenheimer, but he's the one who brought up the subject first. And he did in this last interview, which was in 2003, just a few months before, less than three months before he died. And he asked me, what would I have done at the security hearing if I were teller? And I said, well, I didn't think your testimony was necessary. The fix was in. It was a political trial. You didn't need to say what you did. And his answer was, I do not think that it may have been unnecessary, which is a typical teller comment. It's a double negative. In other words, after all this time, he is not apologizing for what he did to Oppenheimer. He's expressing no regret. And I guess I found that kind of remarkable. And I think that one reason is that Teller believes that the controversy over Oppenheimer in 1954 caused American scientists to be wary of working for the government. So when Teller in 1983 wanted to recruit scientists at Los Alamos and elsewhere to work on Star Wars, he got a lot of rejections, including from people who were very close to Oppenheimer. And they remembered what Teller had done to Oppenheimer at the hearing. Right after the hearing, Teller went to Los Alamos for a a scientific conference, and he went up to people that he had scientists he had known for many years and stuck his hand out to shake their hand, and they simply turned on their heel and walked away. Really? And Teller was devastated, just left the meeting immediately. One of the scientists says that, and Teller disputes this, but the other scientist who knew Teller well said that Teller had said, I've quit the appeasers and joined the fascists. In other words, I'm no longer working with the liberal scientists, but I'm now working with the military. Was he aware of the public perception of him, do you think? Was he aware, and did that worry him? Well, it worried him, and I think it depressed him, but it didn't change him. I think somebody tried to firebomb his house at Stanford, and whenever he would appear publicly, there would be protests because of his support for his role in the hydrogen bomb, but also primarily for his role in testifying against Oppenheimer. It's funny, you know, recent history and recent events has brought sort of nuclear weapons back into the public imagination, having... I think we'd all sort of slightly forgotten about them for the last, I don't know, 30 years or so. But the nuclear weapons that America has and Britain has and Russia has, are they hydrogen bombs? Are they the sort of legacy of Teller's hydrogen bomb? Or I'm unclear as to sort of what we have. Well, the large yield weapons certainly are hydrogen bombs. And actually, in terms of efficiency, it makes much more sense to build a hydrogen bomb than an atomic bomb. The weapons have gotten much smaller physically smaller, but also smaller in terms of yield. And there are tactical nuclear weapons now. 
they can be the so-called dial yield. You can actually choose before you launch the thing how how powerful you want it to be. But again, it does work, though, the way that no one's going to use it. Nobody will use it, I don't think. Even the Russians now, right, right. there's a lot of talk and there's a lot of fear. And Well, it's true. I mean, there is this nuclear allergy, if you will, and the threshold has never been crossed since 1945. But it's become much easier to cross it now, unfortunately, because we and the Russians, especially the Russians now, have weapons that are fractions of a kiloton. And if Putin wanted to use a nuclear weapon, he wouldn't use one that was a fraction of a kiloton. Almost wouldn't matter what the yield is or how destructive it is. The fact that he crossed this threshold that has not been crossed since 1945. But that's the interesting thing. Like, not even Putin, I don't think, this is my own opinion, would cross that threshold. Because if he did cross that threshold, it would be the end of Putin. I don't know the American plan for what would happen if Putin did use a tactical nuclear weapon, but I think it's pretty clear that we would not respond in kind, that our response would be non-nuclear, at least initially. Yes, I agree. But it would be a world we haven't been in ever before, and that would be scary. It's interesting, you know, talking about people like Oppenheimer and Teller, they do represent that, the idea of a world that is still really fixed in our imagination, a bad, bad place that we can't actually imagine ever happening. It does, just the names sort of Teller and Oppenheimer sort of conjure up that, those sorts of feelings. Yeah, but it is true, as you point out, that in the 30 years or so since the end of the Cold War, that Americans have forgotten about nuclear weapons. And that's probably a dangerous thing in itself because they are still there. There's also the potential for nuclear accident, but... Actually, I've written an article with a colleague at Livermore about Putin's use of a nuclear weapon as a demonstration to deliberately cross the threshold, but not to do a lot of damage or maybe even damage, but just to show that I'm a dangerous guy (laughs) and I'm willing to do this. So God knows what will happen next. It would begin a game of chicken, basically. How are you going to respond to this? Yeah. So basically doing another big test, because obviously Russia and America and Britain and others don't test nuclear weapons. I mean, the North Koreans, I think, did some underground tests a few years ago. But Yes. But there hasn't been an atmospheric test, no. uh, I guess, since 1991. There's not been a test by us or the Russians uh, of nuclear weapon. Complicated. I think that's where we're going to put him in our, is he an evil genius? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> it's complicated, All seems right. to be the problem. It's complicated. I, th- I think that's a good answer. Isn't I think so. I think that's very good. <laughs> you mentioned this idea of nuclear accidents. I'm sure there was a case, didn't someone, that they were working on maintaining one of the big ICBMs and they dropped a hammer on it and it nearly went off. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, exactly. One of the, it was a Titan. Yeah, the Damascus incident and the Titan missile had a hypergolic fuel, which is basically you mix the propellant and the oxidant and the oxidizer and it goes off. And it was a wrench socket, a big wrench socket and it fell and it punctured one of the tanks. I forget what it was. And so the propellant was leaking out And the danger was that, well, it was going to ignite. The rocket itself would collapse. The oxidizer would mix with the propellant, and you'd have a massive explosion. It was called the Damascus incident in Damascus, Iowa. Anyway, and that's exactly what happened. And it blew the warhead straight out of the silo and landed in a field. Luckily, these things are designed so that they don't go off unless all the conditions are right. And they were not right for this to go off. But there have been previous nuclear accidents, near accidents, I should say. And one, famously, where a SAC bomber crashed in North Carolina, the only reason one of the bombs didn't go off is because there was, I think, a 50-cent switch 
that did not close. This is a multi-megaton bomb <laughs> that Jesus. could have gone off in North, oh Car North Carolina. So luckily these interlocks and these permissive action links, as they're called, are built in. So they're much more safe than they were in the early days. But there are more of them now, and there's still the potential for an accident. Crikey, there's a dinner party story, isn't it? You're like, oh, yeah, I dropped a socket wrench on a nuclear warhead and it nearly went off. That would have been a bad day. I thought one of the most interesting stories to come out of that was they finally got the nuclear warhead and they put it on a flatbed truck and they covered it with a tarpaulin and they drove it out of the town. And the people gathered on the side of the road to watch this thing go out. And one of the women saluted Really? <laughs> it's an indication of how nuclear weapons are so much a part of our culture, even if they're not seen, yeah. is that you would salute one as it's being carted out of town. The crazy thing is as well that this is America we're talking about and the fact that accidents yes. can happen in America where we kind of assume everything is like absolutely looked after perfectly and da, da, da. But the fact is that accidents can still happen. And you think about the end of the Cold War, for example, and all that nuclear material just kind of vanishing and disappearing into God knows where, into the hands of God knows who. Something like that happening again does not bode well. I think. Well, we actually did a pretty good job. We and the Russians did a pretty good job of dealing with the enriched uranium and the plutonium. But there is so much plutonium still around. And plutonium is still around in secure storage in Russia and such places. But the interesting thing here, too, is that the scientists knew this was going to be a problem. In May of 1945, the scientists who were advising the American government were asked, so when will other nations have this thing? And they said, well, you know, other smaller nations will get the bomb eventually, probably in a few years. But eventually, even groups will have this. And this is in May of 1945, before the bomb had been tested to even know it worked. And the recognition by the scientists was that these things are not going away. You know, they didn't say terrorists, but even groups would have the bomb eventually. Well, that's it. And you don't even need a bomb. You just need some nuclear material. And then you create panic, you create fear, you destabilize regions you know, what, what's happened with Russia and Ukraine. It's the uncertainty and the fear that is the real, does the real damage. Yes. Greg, listen, we'll let you go. It's been a pleasure to chat. Thank you very much for taking us the time and, and painting us a beautiful portrait of, well, particularly Edward Teller, I think, as a, a much misunderstood and, well, controversial character. Thank you. Complicated. Complicated. <laughs> <laughs> So there we go. I hope you enjoyed that. Thank you very much for listening as ever. Thank you very much for your company. And if you're enjoying the show, please don't forget to tell all your friends. Shout it loudly from the rooftops. Tweet about it. Instagram about it. Tell your family and everyone else. And of course, maybe recommend this episode to anyone who enjoyed the film Oppenheimer or indeed enjoyed the film Barbie. Uh, if you've got a suggestion for a topic you'd like us to cover, you can, as ever email us at patented at historyhit.com. Thank you very much for your company as ever. I will see you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch. Download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes, or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code Patented at the checkout, you get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.